Jeff Beck turns around and he says, you know, Mike, you blow a fucking mean harmonica, mate. And I swear that was the best thing that anybody ever told me in my whole fucking life. I probably felt so fucking good to dude, hear that, from dude. from Jeff fucking Beck, and I went, I learned it from you and Keith Ralph, buddy. I really appreciate you coming out, first of all. I know this was like last minute and everything, so shout out to Liv for setting this up. But yeah, man, I like really want to hear your story. Um, everybody, this is uh, Michael Oblowitz. He is a filmmaker, um, and you've been doing it for f 40 years? Oh, I'm probably uh, half a century now. No, close to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually had my first movie camera when I was about eight. I remember begging my dad to buy me a movie camera. This is back in the early 60s right I uh, you know when movie cameras were six they, they had eight millimeter movie cameras they would take 16 millimeter film and they would cut it down the middle where you shot it and then it would you'd flip it over and then you'd expose the other side of the film and then you'd uh, then they'd cut it down the middle and they'd create this little thin strip, this eight millimeter strip. So I grew up learning how to load that and do all that. So it made me very versatile with my hands and I felt very comfortable with film as a substance, right? Because, you know, you it's completely different to this digital generation now. It was very physical. And uh, they didn't have automatic exposure meters, so you learned how to expose film and all these things. And then I graduated from that to... Uh, uh, a 35 millimeter still camera when I was young I was doing that and all through that and I was on the beach in I guess it was in the early 60s in Cape Town I grew up in a beach in South Africa and the, South Africa has amazing waves when Bruce Brown and Mike Hinson and Robert August were filming The Endless Summer they came to South Africa remember they found they discovered the perfect wave in South Africa really as part of The Endless Summer yeah so I was there on the beach. I was this kid. I grew I was born on a beach. My dad's house is on the beach. And I was always in the ocean and in the water. And, uh, and there were these guys with the movie cameras. I'd never seen anything like it. And surfboards, neither of which I'd seen anything like it. Surfing these waves on the beach that I grew up. And I fell in love with surfing. And I guess with filming at that point. And I went on to make two of the most famous surfing documentaries of all time. What are those documentaries called? One is Sea of Darkness, which is about cocaine smuggling, how Quicksilver was funded on cocaine and that, smuggling and the discovery of G-Land. That was 2010, right? That was 2010, and that's won every single festival in the world and was like premiered at Cine Vegas, which was Dennis Hopper. Remember did the great Dennis Hopper who lived down the road here in Venice, where we are in my production company office in Venice. And um, Dennis was a huge fan of of cocaine and various other drugs back when he was young, before he became sober. And um, he was very much attracted to this movie that he heard I was doing about cocaine smuggling. And at that point, he'd been sober for a number of years, but he'd contracted prostate cancer, which I guess, you know, like, you know, if you're, if you're sober for uh, about a tenth of the time that you were high on heroin and cocaine, your chances of, of coming out of this healthily are not that good, even <laughs> even if you are sober. No, right? for real, though. For real. You're not getting around on that. Right. Dennis Hopper was not kidding around. But anyway, so he, uh, the, the guys from Sundance Film Festival that I'd already had a movie in were organizing this tribute film festival to Dennis Hopper called uh, Cine Vegas, in Vegas. And this was going to be the last year of it. And everybody knew Harper had this terminal prostate cancer. And he wanted a film that he felt he could relate to to open the festival. So a film about cocaine smuggling and surfing was right up his alley because he was a California guy, you know? Yeah. And so um, I got to hang out with Dennis Harper. When that's how this film premiered. And uh, um, it was... Uh, the film was I got it financed by the guys that paid for one of my Steven Seagal movies that I directed they made a lot of money and I got the cooperation of all the guys from Quicksilver because they always wanted to make a film about G-Land yeah. which was this mythical surf spot that was discovered by them and their friends 
while they were busy, you know, dealing millions of tons of kilos of cocaine and stuff and using some of those proceeds to finance uh, a clothing company, which all the surf company, you know, surfers were notoriously criminal back from, you know, you know that Murph the Surf documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, know exactly what you're talking about. Mickey Dora. I mean, that was the basis of, uh, of how do you finance an enterprise that can keep you in the ocean and in the sun 24-7 when you have no money and you want to do drugs. Well, it's obvious you do drugs and you deal drugs and then everything comes together in a perfect world and I guess that's why I'm leaving for the North Shore of Oahu tomorrow to go surfing for two weeks. Man, I'm jealous. Take me with you. Uh, you're Damn. Pretty, you're not pretty enough. Damn. I don't even blame you. <laughs> I don't even blame you. But uh, um, nevertheless, so that was that movie and uh, um, it was kind of like the cocaine cowboys are surfing. And it made me pretty famous worldwide. And Quicksilver stepped in with one of their um, uh, deputized uh, members of their cartel who was in the movie and was instrumental in the movie being made. And he promptly offered my uh, financiers an offer they couldn't refuse and they bought them out. So suddenly I had the subjects of my movies being the partner with me in the movie and they actually owned more of the movie than I did. And they assured me they wouldn't do anything to impede the distribution of the movie, but of course, they fucked up every fucking distribution deal I ever had, and the movie's never been released. So the movie has become, as a result, like this mythical holy grail of surf movies, and everybody in the surfing world knows who I am, and that's how Poopies knows who I am. That is so, so funny. So uh, I, you know, but, you know, nevertheless, I have copies of the movie, and it gets shown in in discreet uh, uh, screens on the North Shore and in, and apparently every surf boat in Indonesia where the movie takes place has a copy of it and you know I mean, if I went to Indonesia I'd probably never have to I mean I've been to Indonesia but I went back there I haven't been back since I made the movie I probably wouldn't have to pay for anything because that movie is considered the absolute uh, holy grail of surf movies and it is frankly it's the best surf movie I've ever seen and I've seen them all. I, I'm very proud of that film and what it stands for. I'm even very proud that the Quicksilver guys who are in the movie hate the movie because fuck them. Yeah, fuck them. Fuck, fuck them. them. They made enough fucking money of selling board shorts based on smuggling. And cocaine. they're still doing it, too. You know? Well, they kind of lost a lot of money over the years, but some of them... I mean, a lot of them have been very nice to me. Like Bob McKnight, the guy who ran Quicksilver, he's always been super fucking cool, and we've surfed together. Uh, but some of them are pissed off, you know, and so fuck them. Did you like learning about all the... Um, or was it, how interesting was it for you learning about the different smuggling techniques and stuff like that? During... Oh, I knew about all the smuggling you techniques. You already knew what it was. The movie. My I, man. I, I mean, well, you've got to remember that growing up in South Africa, right, so in the 60s, uh, when I was a teenager, um, South Africa was considered one of the most mythical surf places in the world because of the endless summer, which I had been totally in, in, inducted into that legendary surfing universe just by happenstance that I was on the beach and saw it happen, right? So I was so fascinated with it. And because I grew up surfing since I was about three and I grew up on the ocean, I was a really good surfer. And so I knew all the guys, you know, like who were involved in surfing and it was the 60s and drugs were everywhere. And like, who wouldn't want to do drugs, you know, especially if they were me. And South Africa, besides having amazing surf, also had amazing pot. They had, it's called Durban Poison. And if you go to any pot store here, you'll see that strain is always available, Durban Poison, that's been cultivated from those original seeds and was smuggled in by drug smugglers from South Africa. They used to hollow out surfboards, uh, and fill the interior of the surfboard with with Durban poison and then gloss fiberglass it back up so you couldn't tell what? and that's I've what the movie never so heard I this. knew about all of this stuff growing up because I knew the guys who were shaping boards and who were doing that stuff the legends in South Africa and what Quicksilver did everybody it was not like Quicksilver were the only guys the guy, those guys doing it everybody was doing it right, right? Who, who had half a brain and who could do it successfully it didn't take more than half a brain to do it back then because there were no computers so it was very hard for for the FBI and the DEA and airport security to track who was doing what, as a, it's much simpler now. That's a totally know? different story right now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was a great time to live, and I 
feel like my film Sea of Darkness was a it's not an indictment of anybody it's a celebration of that free and innocent life where people got killed for doing drugs just like they do now that's awesome so you see, you that's a really cool story I want to see the movie now um, well if you uh, try hard enough you'll probably find someone who has it uh, you know I'm you know we don't want to be sued by the people who bought it that's a pretty reasonable it's a pretty reasonable request to not want to get sued yeah I don't want to be sued by these motherfuckers but uh, <laughs> Boy, they'd love to find reason to sue me, though. So does everybody. Everybody sucks. You know, people people just like to sue for no fucking reason. Especially, especially when they're fucking up the distribution and being the problem. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, especially capitalist pigs. Yeah, amen to that, for real. Yeah. So then, um, you talked about doing a movie with, with Steven Seagal, um, which is an interesting character just because of his past, his and then, like, right now with everything that he has going on. Um, I just wanted your take on what, what was it like working with a guy like Steven Seagal, and then how has your perception of who that person has now changed... Uh, over the years oh no my perception never changed Steven Seagal was as constant as the northern star he was exactly what he was from the moment I met him to what he is now he might just be a little fatter uh, but you know I, I, I'll begin by telling you a great story speaking about fat um, so we were filming I guess this movie was happening in Bulgaria and uh, he uh He likes to wear Levi jeans and this kind of Indian, Chinese, Mandarin kind of a silk top that he wears, right? Uh, with, a, with one that looked like a Nehru style, you know, beetle collar, you know, that round thing. Yeah. Right? And his hair is in a ponytail and a little goatee and the whole thing. It's usually a purple colored thing. But... But for trousers, he wears these Levi jeans. And he was telling me, I need to get a close-up of the label of the Levi jeans. And he probably brings out a stack of, of these labels, you know, the brown leather label. Mm -hmm. And they're all freshly printed for some reason. We're in Bulgaria where anything can be uh, 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 fraudulently copied, right? And duplicated. And, you know, Bulgaria being the sort of epicenter of computer hacking and... Uh, um, illegal um, replicas of of, of, of uh, Gucci bags and shoes and you see those old, a lot of those right yeah. so so he has so he has his replications about a hundred of these size thirty one waist thirty six 38 leg I mean he's a tall he's about six foot tall and and he says I have to get close ups of these and I'm looking at these and I'm going. Now, Seagal's about 350 pounds, and he's about a size 46 waist. He's definitely Damn, he's a big dude. He's a big motherfucker, yeah, dude. He's he tall as fuck. 46 right? waist? I don't know if he's 46. Fuck. I mean, I don't know. I don't you know, know, but yeah. I mean, be... I, I, you know, I, I stopped having interests in uh, jeans <laughs> waists uh, above 35 or 36. <laughs> There's nothing more that I need to know, but that, that would be my outside <laughs> jean waist. That's I, the cutoff I, for everybody I, I listening. I tend to be trying to keep it around the 34 point. <laughs> Mark, you know, given that I'm so old, you know, but for most of my life it was 32, 31, 32. But this is like definitely way, this is definitely almost close to double that size, right? It's kind of like walrus size. Damn. So, but he's telling me, he's, I got to get a close up of these labels and I'm trying to put it together what he means. And then I realized he wants me to go to the wardrobe department because he doesn't want to do it. And have them apply these size 31 waist labels to his size 49 jeans, right? And then get close-ups of the, you know, do a shot from the 31 uh, uh, waist label up to his face so I can show to the world at large that he's wearing size 31 <laughs> fucking jeans. He's fucking not wearing and 31 size. And, and then for the wide shot, of course, we bring in the, the duplicate uh, stand-in who's like this skinny motherfucker looks like a Chippendale dancer <laughs> right except he's got like um, a black ponytail and, a, and a, you know so from certain angles he's like uh, some kind of a skinny version uh, simulacrum of Steven Seagal and this is the guy that's uh, Putin's right hand man advising him on the Ukrainian combat so no wonder it's going so well for Russia <laughs> it's, it's not going well it's not going well so you keep 
you um when you started this whole entire situation like i, I have, situation i'm starting to feel well that's it so like i i was really interested when we were talking before you said you directed the first music video oh so i'll give you a quick rundown yeah, give me, i want to i want to right, hear so, so I, grew I, up, I grew up in south africa i see the endless summer being filmed i get into surfing i see a lot of drug smuggling happening um, I'm enjoying all of it, you know, I'm smoking a lot of pot. Somehow I sort of make it through high school and, you know, I'm good at drawing and art and photography and playing music and all these creative things. So there's no doubt in my mind that that's what I'm doing because you can do it all stoned. And I love surfing because it's the only sport you can do stoned out of your fucking brain. I agree. I, you know, so, uh, and I like being stoned. So, uh, you know, I, I was, they wanted me to play in the rugby team because I was an athletic and I didn't really like being kicked in the face, being stoned. You know what I mean? It was like I was good at rugby and I enjoyed it, but it was just a lot more fun surfing. So my life really was surfing, playing music, doing art, you know, from day one. I never had any other thing that I wanted to do. And uh, I just had to figure out how to make money from it, right? Which I kind of did. And... Uh, uh, by the, you know, they, they had a draft in South Africa in, uh, in the early 70s. Anybody turned 18 had to go and shoot black people in the army, you know. So it was a kind of world that Marjorie Taylor Greene would have loved, where, like, blacks and gays and transphobics were all lined up and basically shot or put in internment camps. It's kind of a lot like Nazi Germany, and I think a lot of the Nazis from Nazi Germany went to live in South Africa. So I just wanted to get the fuck out of there as quickly as possible. And so I draft dodged the army after a few months of having bullets. I was in there for a few months, had bullets flying over my face. I was going to ask, like, how, what, what, did, what did you see while you were there? I saw bullets flying over my head in trenches and signs that said uh, non-whites only and all that shit. I got, I got exempted. It's a whole story. I got out of that. I, 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 I faked injuries on my feet from the boots because in the old days when we used to kneel surf on those longboards, you got big bumps on your ankles. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to one of these dumb Afrikaner com commandants because I spoke really good Afrikaans. And I said, look at uh, these bumps the boots are making. And he was going, who do you can Afrikaans prod? Meaning the Jew speaks Afrikaans. So he was surprised oh. that this Jew could speak Afrikaans. But I was fortunate my father who had escaped the Nazis, we spoke about five languages. So I could speak all these different languages. So I went straight in Afrikaans. They, they exempted me from the fucking army for like, I went to university, studied fine arts, got the degree, and then I was supposed to go back to the army, and instead I told my dad, hey, I'm going to London, I'm out of here. Yeah, Fuck this dude. is not for me. <laughs> this is not for me. Killing black people is not what I want to do. So eventually I came to New York, which only to find the police, and everybody was killing black people where I was, and black people were killing each other, and there was just like endless killing of black people going on. And I've lived in America ever since, and I guess probably a lot more black people get killed in America than in South Africa, which turned out to be a black country and Nelson Mandela, who was one of my heroes, took over. And uh, it's cool as fuck. And I keep asking myself why I don't go back there. Yeah, I was going to say, I was <laughs> you, you seem to enjoy it and everything. I actually had the pleasure of meeting a gentleman from South Africa as well. And you guys have that distinct accent. Every, you know yeah, I, mean? I love no, I love South Africa, and I, I love Nelson Mandela. I think he's the greatest. He's the only great, really great politician that's ever existed on this planet. And he, everybody should follow him and do whatever he says. And only you know, a, a close second is is, uh, is Obama. I liked Obama a lot. It was a nice, peaceful country under Obama, and um, it, I mean, it's safe to say that everything that um, Marjorie Green likes, I hate. Everything that Rick DeSantis likes, I hate. Everything that Donald Trump likes, I hate. So that's just the world that we live in, you know? I love how unforgivably yourself you are. That's like I my have, favorite attribute about you off the rib right there. There's absolutely no redeeming features in a fucking Republican at this point. <laughs> I fucking that's, love you, dude. That's all You're I hilarious, say. bro. That's all I can fucking say, dude. <laughs> it's like, you want to fuck the world up more than it's fucked up already? Vote Republican. That's and, I, and I'm no fan of Democrats either. I think they're all corrupt as fuck. Yeah. But they're, if anybody thinks there's no choice, they're dumb as fuck. Because watch this world hurtle down the toilet. It already speed, is. At the speed that it's going. You know, thank yourself for voting Donald Trump in. Because he disrupted so much of the checks and balances and... The sheeples, and I like that word sheeples, which the QAnon 
idiots use all the time. Mm -hmm. But the sheeples that follow people like Donald Trump are now watching and think it's all a fucking conspiracy, what's going on in Ukraine and what's happening in Hungary and what's happening to the climate and all this crap. So those are the things that I stood against when I left South Africa thinking I was going to find this incredible new world out there. And instead, <laughs> I didn't. But I had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I did a lot of drugs. I met a lot of beautiful women. I made movies. And uh, in 1976, in New York City, I was part of the original punk rock new wave crowd. Me and my friend Amos Poe were the very first independent filmmakers in the world, right? Because I had all this ability with 60 millimeter you know, yeah. when I was young on the camera. And I, you know, I was good at shooting film, 35 moves. And I really got into shooting 16 millimeter. I was a good cameraman. And I worked with all the uh, German independent filmmakers shooting their films, and um, Jim Jarmish, you know, the filmmaker. We were all part of this group called the New York New Wave. And okay. Luckily for that, all my films from that period and still photographs are in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So fuck you, all of you. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm in the Museum of Modern Art and you're not. I said it to this attorney who was giving me shit. Uh, you like trying to fuck me on this movie deal and telling me how wonderful he was because he had represented Steven Soderbergh and of course he got fired. And I said to him, listen, pal, I'm in the fucking Museum of Modern Art till the end of time and you're not. So fuck off. <laughs> I got to do something now to get in the fucking Museum of Modern Art well, so I can not easy, scoot dude. my ass back here and say it to, to you. To, talk, talk about being a one percenter, right? Yeah, dude. I mean, that's awesome. Though. How, what, what's that feeling like when you were first go into the Museum of Modern well, it Art? It took me a long, took them about 40 years to recognize yeah. all of our work from that period. But it was, you know, when you start out as a young artist... I mean, coming to New York, I mean, you don't start out thinking, I'm going to make millions of dollars the way they do now. Right. I thought, I just want to be in art history. I want to be part of an art history movement that's going to be recognized as we did something unique and changed the world. Now, that's audacity to think you could be part of that group. Especially from the situation you came from. I came from South Africa, dude. I that mean, dude, that's badass. It wasn't like I was born in fucking New York City. That's what I, I mean. I didn't even know you know the the denominations of dollars and cents when i got off the plane i grew up in a country that had pounds and shillings and penny farthings it was like some kind of weird lost in time version of the british you know the the british colonial kingdom it was really like not part of the universe right. as such and the whole world was like um embargoing South Africa because there were all these anti-apartheid movements and all that shit going on. So the first thing someone said to me, you're from South Africa, how come you're not black? I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of white people in South Africa, though. No, but they didn't know that. You know, in 1976, I mean, who the fuck knew anything, right? But it was a great time to be in New York. New York, all the rich people had left New York. Crime was rampant. The dollar was destroyed. I mean, the dollar was worth about 25 cents on the international market. Really? Gasoline was, like, so expensive, right? And, um, well, you know, New York was just overrun with rats and fucking, uh, you know, muggers and gangbangers. It was great. You, you could rent a 2,500-square-foot by 18-foot-high ceilings loft in what is now known as Tribeca yeah. for about $250 a month. So that was the New York, so, so it was a great time to be an artist there. And, you know, out of that group of artists that we were associated with came Patti Smith and uh, Tom Verlaine and the tele band Television, still the greatest rock band of all time, I think. I mean, have you ever heard Television's album, Marky Moon? I mean, nobody, not even fucking anybody has done a better album than that song, Marky Moon. Marky Moon was the marquee song of my heroin days and cocaine days in New York City. Just oh, you were speedballing. You were getting after it. Of course we were speedballing. Damn. I was, I was fit as fuck. Dude. Damn. I, I even, I got friendly with the artist Julian Schnabel, the great painter okay. and film director who's still a friend of mine today. And he and I were the only two cats who surfed in New York City in 1976. He was working as a short order cook in this restaurant. And I was already taking photographs and working for the Village Voice as a photographer. And Julian and I found out we both surfed. And 
people thought we were fucking crazy. Nobody, this is a punk rock era. Nobody surfed. I mean, they were so... I think the reason why I could survive drugs was that I always surfed. I never liked drugs that much. I mean, I liked them. They were great right. when I was working and editing. But I wanted to get up in the morning to go surfing. So I never... You know, I mean, yeah, I took heroin and cocaine and everything. You know, there was nothing that I didn't want to try. But I, never, I guess I don't have an addictive personality. That's I never awesome. felt addicted to anything. And I never took them every day. It was like, don't fuck up my surfing program. You know, that was... And Julian, I don't think, ever took drugs, right? So he and I just were very motivated people, motivated artists, and we loved to surf. And he became so wealthy, he, he ended up owning or renting Andy Warhol's mansion that he had out on the beach in uh, Montauk with its own private beach that had this fucking killer left point break and we had our own beach to surf in you're right and i was with julian the day he, he had mentored jean michel basquiat the okay. artist that was julian who mentored him and you know julian in his 30s was already like a multi-millionaire like he was selling paintings for hundreds of thousands of dollars and this warhol estate was like this old um uh like fishing Houses. I don't know how to explain. It was like this little group of fishing houses, fishermen's houses, right? Yeah, in yeah, Montauk. They had been there since like the 18th century. And um, there was this big tennis court, and he hung these giant canvases on this tennis court, and he would do his signature paintings, like like kind of expressionistic, abstract, incredible paintings in gold and on velvet and all this stuff. And one morning I came in to go do our surfing session, and he was crying. He was in his, like... Um, smoking jacket that he always wore and and these belgian slippers they were called these like velvet shoes a little red velvet like slippers a little uh, red and gold, gold crests on them it was like he's such a character long hair and a beard and he was crying with these dark glasses and i said what happened and he went in french jean-michel says mort jean-michel is dead and he, this painting, this giant black velvet canvas, and in gold was what he had written in French, Jean-Michel says mort, Jean-Michel is dead. Wow. And that's, he started asking me, how can, I want to make a movie, and that's when he got the idea to do the movie Basquiat, which he directed. Remember the film, the, the, the feature with David Bowie. So this is where all this kind of inspiration kind of all ties together. Everything comes together. Damn, that is this so is, cool. You are sitting right here at the crossroads, bro. I am the crossroads. This is sick. This you know? is unbelievable. You know, man. you know how you know the story of the crossroads. How Robert Johnson gave his soul to the devil so that he could play the blues. Of course. Well, I gave my soul to the devil so I could make art. And that's the truth, though. You sell your that's soul the to truth. the devil. You my do. soul is sold to the fucking devil all the way. Yeah. Well, you do. You no. I mean, in all seriousness and like all jokes I'm aside, play, play, I seriously. play fucking blues. Let me tell you, I played with Paul Butterfield. I I directed. I got John Lee Hooker's. I did a video with John Lee Hooker and Carlos Santana called The Healer that got onto MTV when none, nobody even knew who the fuck John Lee Hooker was. He was 80 years old and I got him on MTV in heavy rotation because I sold my soul to the same devil that Robert Johnson did. You know, I live by the blues, right? That's what it's all about. MTV came around with us. So what year was that? I was one of the first directors on MTV, like the early 80s. So they wanted guys who... Because back then we didn't have all this video shit and all these. I mean, they had video, but it was video was something that people used to shoot like behind the scenes with. It looked like crap. It still does, as far as I'm concerned. Nothing, right. nothing looks like film. And they wanted guys who really knew how to work film cameras. And I was really, by the time I was like in my late twenties, I was really accomplished. I'd been shooting documentaries, and you know, I'd made these underground features, and I was working with artists like Lawrence Weiner and Joseph Kosuth in New York. All the great artists. I was really part of that scene. So I was rocking and rolling. And they, so the MTV guys got hold of me and I started shooting some of the earliest videos. I did the very first video that was on VH1 was for Carly Simon. And I directed that video. That was my fucking video. So I was right there in that beginning when we started having to convert 
film to video in order to make it play. Right? What year was that that, that like really kind of came out? 82, 83, 84, early 80s, right? And that's when we were doing shitloads of cocaine because everybody was. It was the 80s. It was the cocaine 80s and it was real cocaine, not like this crap that people do. Oh, no, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, mean, I, 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 I mean, love I cocaine was, just as much as the next guy, but, oh, I do. you know, it's a great time. It's a hell of a drug. Shout I mean, out Rick my James. favorite Bob Dylan song is when he sings, I got cocaine running <laughs> yes. around my brain. Yeah, dude. Cocaine case for horses Man. it's not for men or bears. doctor doctor says it's gonna kill me just don't know when i got cocaine running around my brain that's like but it's, it's so true, man, because, like, nowadays, you know, you get, like, fentanyl in it. You get, oh, you know, you, you know. Dude, no artificial heroin. They can't even give you real heroin. They're going to give you fentanyl. Yeah. you got to be a fucking loser to take that shit, dude. <laughs> dude, dude. Dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. You were, born, you were born in the wrong fucking era, all you motherfuckers. Dude, I was born in an era full of pussies is what I was no, in I was born in an era full of pussy. Yeah, yeah. See, that's the difference, though. Well, there's still you plenty of up- that around. <laughs> Like you grow up in the like one of my one of my favorite movies ever is the movie Blow. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, you know one of my favorite drugs ever is Blow. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we got something in common there. Yeah, I fun, like the movie we, too. We found common ground. <laughs> I, I think that's Johnny Depp's best performance. I agree. I agree. I really do. I'm a huge I'm a huge Johnny Depp. I mean, fan. you know, anybody who goes from Blow to the Pirates of Penzance, whatever the fuck that movie Pirates was of Caribbean, <laughs> whatever that Pirates thing, he should have just stuck with the Blow <laughs> side of things. But I guess I guess he got like fucking. He got too wired, and you know he's got his signals crossed. Dude, he th- that dude definitely has his signals crossed. <laughs> That's fucking. They were saying shit. he was like spending. Somebody said like one time they were like, they were, it was like a, and he confirmed this too. He was saying they were like, Johnny, you can't spend like fucking twenty grand a month on on wine. He's like, I don't. I spend thirty grand a month on wine. Well, I mean, here's <laughs> the crazy like, thing, right? So I one of my in my great MTV eras, one of my best videos I ever did was for Buddy Guy and Jeff Beck doing Mustang Sally. Okay. Can you imagine those two motherfuckers doing Mustang Sally? It's an incredible kick-ass video. And I had the best time with Jeff Beck because I'd grown up listening to the Yardbirds, that band he had with um, with with Keith Relf on harmonica and Jimmy Page on... They were, imagine having Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page both on lead guitar. Dude, it's like it was an insane band. It's fucking right? super team. And I learned, and this was in the early 60s, and I learned to play the harmonica listening to Keith Relf. So I always was a good blues harp player. And here I am on this fucking flatbed trailer. It's my idea to shoot it all in Reno. And I got Buddy there. And I got... This is the only time I wanted to have a fucking digital video camera. But they hadn't been invented yet, right? <laughs> they could have filmed on I've So I have no record. Because, you know, it's a music video. And it's shot in film. And it's very expensive. So there's no documentation other than a few black and white photographs. But me and Jeff and Buddy Guy on this flatbed trailer. And I would always have... Music videos were mainly the original ones shot to playback, but I would always have um, live amps put on there because I was working with such amazing rock stars and I always wanted to jam with them because I love to play music. Yeah. So I bring out my harps, and Jeff and Buddy are playing guitar, and I'm wailing on the harp, and Jeff Beck turns around and he says, You know, Mike, you blow a fucking mean harmonica, mate. And I swear that was the best thing that anybody ever told me in my whole fucking life. I probably felt so fucking good to dude, hear that, dude. from Jeff fucking Beck, and I went, I learned it from you and Keith Relf, buddy. Dude, it was like unreal, because Keith Relf was the harmonica player for the Yardbirds, who it was so great, he died, because he was playing harmonica, and he would dip it into, like I learned from him, into scotch to make the reeds swell up to get this clean harmonica sound. And his harmonica was all wet, and he touched a live mic, and he got electrocuted and died. No way. Now that's a guy who gave his soul to the fucking devil for the blues. Yeah, he did. Do you prefer making film or do you prefer to shoot music videos? No, I prefer to record the soundtracks for my movies. I work, I play on my own movies, right? So I've got like... That's I mean, the, sick. The, the new movie, The new movie that I'm doing now, the Mel Gibson feature. Yeah. So my score is done by DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, who's a really good friend. And... Roy Hayes and Boy George from the Culture Club because it's a movie set in the 80s and 90s. So I saw, well, these are my friends. I'm going to get the best fucking bands from the 80s and 90s. I mean, there's no better 90s hip-hop band than Cypress fucking Hill, dude. And there's... there's We were just listening to them in the car. Yeah, Yeah, dude. It was like literally... So so, so I got um, Muggs doing... Imagine a hip-hop version of Culture Club, right? You're a comic chameleon, all those stuff. So now I've got Muggs and Roy 
collaborating and I'm playing fucking harmonica on these tracks and guitar and we're fucking having the because we've all jammed together over the years I know all these guys because we all used to party together back in the day in Venice like Roy and I we all you know we all come when I came from New York to Venice I was always ahead of the curve so I lived in New York and Tribeca and Soho when it was $250 a month to rent a 2500 square foot lot and then I lived there for 20 years and when Google and all these fucking Internet cunts arrived. I decided it was time to get the fuck out of Dodge. <laughs> I didn't want to be around all these fucking young, young, young. The fucking up. internet cunts cyber, is the fucking cy- new word, cyber, bro. Cyber entrepreneurs, <laughs> right? Oh, fuck you. They, so I moved to fucking Venice, and then I hung out in Venice and met all the local boys here and had a great time surfing and doing drugs and making art and music. And then the Google fuckers came to Venice, dude. Yeah. And yeah. now they fucked Venice up as well, all those fucking internet cunts. You know, now we got to look at this Elon Musk running around in his fucking electric car. I mean, he's a South African I'm not proud of. Oh, yeah, that's right. He is South African. Oh, I always forget him. about yeah, that. Yeah, he comes from Pretoria, the racist Afrikaner part of South Africa, just so you know. Really? Even though he's a Jew like me, but there were a lot of racist Jews. And look what's going on in Israel right now. It's an example of racist Jews. So the world is really a fucked up place, you know. And so... What can I say? No wonder I'm the Prince of Darkness. Hey, man, gang, gang. I like that, me, dude. Someone called me on the Internet Movie Database. They said my <laughs> nickname was the Because my movies were so dark. was the Prince of Darkness. But I feel like they're authentic, just like you. And I think that's the, one of the... Com- trying to make them commercial. You know, you don't, you can't really pay the rent with authenticity. That's true. That's true, too. Do you do you have, um, like, a lot of... Um, drugs? Yeah, we could do some drugs. <laughs> Let's go. No, do you, I mean, and also, who's, your, who's your favorite, or actually, this is what I was going to ask, because of my notes. Um, who is your, um, like, how do you deal with somebody who's an actor or an actress that's being an asshole on set? You know, do you have, like, a specific way that you deal with them? <laughs> well, or do you just assholes. tell them to fuck off? No, no, Because, like, how does this no, work? No, 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 no oh, but, but, like, yeah, because, like, there's an A-list star on set, okay, you know, that's going to happen. But, like, what about somebody else has got a fucking attitude? Uh... No, I, I mean, Clip you know, I, no, I just back off. I mean, I, I reserve all my anger and aggression and things I have to say for podcasts, right? Because then I can say what the fuck I want. True. I don't give a fuck. But on the set, um, maybe when I was younger, I, I would have fights. But, I mean, I could tell you another Steven Seagal story where you could have a real asshole story. Yeah, I want to hear it, for sure. So, um, not that I didn't have a lot of great times with him. I mean, you know... Besides the fact that I guess he was getting me too, and I wasn't, we had a lot of beautiful women, and I really, I, you know, I'm a big supporter of Women's Day, you know, the International Women's Day. I mean, I think they should have that every day. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, every day is International Women's Day for me. That's why it was so funny that he would call me faggot all the time, because, dude, I love women. I think they are the most beautiful things ever invented, and if I was going to choose my preferential drug on this planet, it would be woman. I don't think there's anything more beautiful than a woman. So that said, I here I am working with this guy who's apparently doing things to women without their consent, and they're not happy about that and whatever. So now he has to, you know, be uh, Vladimir Putin's bitch, which is kind of funny because Vladimir Putin is five foot three, and Stephen Zagal is about eighteen feet. I did not know that. That's yeah, why he's that yeah, short. Yeah, well, I, you know, I met him through Seagal. But anyway, so there were a lot of cool things that happened with Seagal, but this was one of the less cool things. He wants me to to make this movie. It's called Out for a Kill, and he wants it to look like the scene to look like Blade Runner, right? So Blade wow. Runner, you know, so we're filming in Bulgaria just after the, the, the commies have all left. The Soviet Republic has all been disbanded, whatever it's called, the Soviet Union. And... My producers have managed to buy an Olympic swimming pool, a complete stadium for about $50 from some gangster. And, you know, he's this Israeli guy, Avi Lerner, and he says, Hey, Michael, can you build this, what this crazy motherfucker Seagal wants? Can you, can you build this Blade Runner set in the swimming pool? I said, well, I guess if you take the water out, I can do it for the swimming pool. I mean, I can't do it in the swimming pool because it's got like fucking 55,000 gallons of water in it. But if you take it out and dry it, I could. I right? a fucking chance at least. And way. I said, well, you know, the cool thing about Blade Runner is that the walls are all wet. Because, it's you know, if you look at Blade Runner, the streets are wet and 
the lights are reflecting off. And that's a major deal about Blade Runner is that everything's wet. So <laughs> the, swimming, the, the swimming pool with the 50 tons of water drained out is perfect because the walls will all be wet. I says, great, Michael. Okay, I'll do it. Shalom, shalom. Okay, great. Okay, okay. Let's do it, right? You know? So now uh, I'm going to build this Blade Runner, futuristic Los Angeles in the Israeli Jewish owned drain swimming pool <laughs> in Eastern Europe, former Soviet Socialist Republic, because that's what Steven Seagal wants, right? So I get in the art director who did Aliens and who designed the original Blade Runner from London, this great old guy, Michael Seymour, and we designed the fuck out of this thing. It looks amazing with intricate sub, uh, like passageways and walls and barbershops and when you see the you should watch out to the kill tonight and see the scenes that are it's shot you know with all the we got in these and this is the great thing that Seagal did he let me run with my imagination he brought in these um, stunt coordinators from uh, from Sezuan in China the um, the original um, Shaolin monks dude we had fucking Shaolin monks so you know it all ties in with my love of extreme sports and action you know right. like and we had these guys doing wire stunts in the set. It was insane. It looks amazing. You'll see it when you watch the movie. Of course, Steven Seagal plays a, an archaeologist. Who would believe fucking Steven Seagal is an archaeologist? There's always a way Literally to ruin. nobody. There's always a way to ruin That's everything. So fucking Everything's funny. perfect except... I said, Steven, don't be a fucking archaeologist. Shave your fucking head and play a fucking FBI agent or a C play something believable no 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 I'm gonna have my ponytail and I'm gonna be a fucking archaeologist right and I'm gonna have these beautiful young 15 year old girls who are my students and there's gonna come a moment when I have to feel her breast to see if she's alive 25 minutes okay well that's good I'm almost at the end of that is fucking oh, hilarious so, so wait wait no, wait, wait, wait wait hold on foot so now now we're, we built the set in the swimming pool and the walls are all wet and everything. And Seagal walks in and he's got this like black hair all swept back and his hair is kind of thinning. So he puts this like black dye in his hair, like this paste to make it look. Yeah. And he's holding this fucking umbrella. And he comes in and he says, who's the faggot who put all this water everywhere? <coughs> and I said, uh, me, sir. See, this is how I told you. I mean, you, you said you wanted to look like Blade Runner, and Blade Runner is fucking wet, and the walls are wet. Yeah. Comes up to me. Now, you remember, like, I'm about, what, five foot four? I'm just a little bit taller than Vladimir Putin. Yeah, five, four, five, five, I'd I'm say. A little stockier, you know, because I surf. And uh, Seagal is, a, what did we say, 18 feet high? And yeah, like 400 dude. pounds. Fucking beast. And he fucking punches me in the chest with this kind of, and he is a quadruple black belt in Taekwondo. And he punches me in the fucking chest. And I go hurtling through the air. It just so happens that all the agents from CAA and all and Hollywood lawyers, and Craig and Manuel, they're all, all the, the Jewish conglomerate who run Hollywood are all in town. Because Seagal's a huge movie star back there, right? To watch this filming. And this is my second or third movie. And everybody thinks, you know, we have this great relationship. And how does Michael tame the wild tiger? Here I am flying through the air in slow motion. And I'm looking at all these corporate bean counters there and heads of studios. And I'm thinking, I could sue this motherfucker and I'd get a million bucks. Oh, yeah, you would. But I'd probably never work again, right? As, as I crash into the wall at the other end of the set, right? And he comes up to me. Now, Steven Seagal used to be married to this woman, Kelly LeBrock who was the woman in red from that song, the woman in red. She was one of the most beautiful women in Hollywood at the time. But they got divorced because he used to beat the fuck out of her, right? And I hit the wall and I land. And there is Seagal still holding his umbrella, towering over me. And he says, I always hurt the people I love. And I said, does that include Kelly LeBrock, sir? <laughs> Did he actually find that funny? Well, that was the last movie I did with him. I, I mean, I'm working with fucking Mel Gibson, dude. What can I tell you? I want to hear more about this new movie. Oh, this movie's fucking awesome. Yeah, I, wanna, I, I keep Gibson, hearing about it. So Mel Gibson it is the best actor I ever worked with in my life. I don't care what people say against about him. I don't care if he supports QAnon or he's anti-vax or whatever the fuck they say. Dude, that guy's a fucking genius. 
I mean, he is... Seagal was definitely an action genius, and I learned a lot about action from that guy. He's really fighting guns. Put it this way. Steven Seagal would never shoot a fucking actor on the set like that moron Alec Baldwin. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Even though I was working for the same financiers on Mel's movie as Baldwin's, and I know what constraints they placed on the production, these guys don't give a fuck about safety or anything. So I f find Baldwin was kind of set up. But, dude... Who the fuck points a gun at someone without looking at a barrel? Even if it's... I mean, you can kill... I mean, do the words Brandon Lee mean anything? I mean, dude, he was killed on the crow with a blank. So, Steven Seagal, I learned so much about guns and gangsters and murder and uh, politics and action, how to do this shit properly. And he really is in that world. That's why he's with Putin. I mean, he was really that world. Um, Mel was a whole different kettle of meat. He was just really the most brilliant. I mean, dude, the guy directed Braveheart. Dude. I learned more about directing and acting and filmmaking from Mel Gibson than I learned doing my fucking master's at Columbia or doing my PhD at NYU that I dropped out of because I was learning so little. Um, but I did get as far as being accepted into a PhD program at one of the best universities in the world. So I was obviously studying with the best people. I learned more in one day with Mel Gibson than I learned in any of those programs. That's you it. You want to end there? That was great. I liked it. If you're good. Yeah, I'm always good, dude. You're always good? I, I love it. You're the man. What do you think, Liv? I think it's great. Huh? You didn't know this shit about me, did you? Never heard it. I feel like you're somebody you could sit with for like a, like a day. I think I need another interview. I, yeah, like... Hey, listen, if, you could, if someone could sit with me a day and listen to all the stories, why do all my beautiful girlfriends keep dumping me? <laughs> <laughs> You're not bringing enough cocaine. Dude, <laughs> I wouldn't dare fucking give a girl cocaine in this day and age. I don't want to have a fucking dead body in yeah. my fucking house. You're right. Have her bring her own. Dude, you, you know what you I'm want, saying. You, I do have to bring their own. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Here's $100. Go find your own fucking cocaine, bitch. I have nothing to do with it. You know, that's why they have that website, Seeking Arrangements. Yeah, fuck but, yeah. yeah. Fuck you yeah. Take, you take money and run, baby. Dude, that's fucking awesome. Hey, man, thank you so much. Right. Seriously, I appreciate you taking the time. I really yeah, do. Yeah, I know you're busy as fuck. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of what's nice to... Question? What's the question? Oh, well, yeah, all right. So so I, got, I always finish my interviews with, with this. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate your happiness? And if, if it's not a 10, what do you think you could do to make it a 10? Well, if you look at the word happiness, you see... Do you play Scrabble? Sometimes. I have this hot chick I've been playing Scrabble with on the internet. It's kind of cool. And though, so I'm very into words. So I break happiness into two words. Huh? Like, uh-huh. And penis. <laughs> ha penis. You know what John Lennon said? Ha penis is a warm gun. Yeah, dude. And that's my answer. I, I like that. That's a that I would say that's probably our best answer yet on uh, the final question. We're definitely gonna put that in the intro. <laughs> a penis is a warm gun. <laughs> Dude, seriously, yeah. I I could sit here for hours and listen to your stories, man. Well, it's pity you're not a beautiful young twenty-five-year-old fashion God model. God damn it! But it's twenty twenty-three. I could be when I walk out of here. <laughs> I know, but Marjorie Taylor Greene won't give you the transformative drugs. Oh fuck! You're right. <laughs> fuck! You're right. Oh no! Like like all those Republican. Do you read about the one Republican guy who's on Instagram? on all these websites of young 20-year-old guys. Oh, Andrew Tate. Yeah, and he's busy liking all their asses and naked butt pics, but he's also at the same time banning drag shows in his town. Oh, no, 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 I know who you're talking about. That old fat guy with a mustache. I, I just I and just heard about this. Yeah, and he's, yeah, it's brand new. He's banning drag shows and gay bars, but he's liking fucking young boys' cocks on Instagram. What a dumb fuck. He should be exterminated along It's a fucking pedophile. Oh, they're all fucking pedophiles. Why do you think they have this whole crazy QAnon thing calling all the liberals and left-wingers pedophiles? Gaslighting, dude. The only word that came out of Hollywood that means anything right from a Hollywood movie, the one contribution that Hollywood cinema made to linguistics, I think, and to uh, political thinking is the word gaslight, right? which yeah. comes from a 1930s movie called Gaslight. Right? That's really interesting. I didn't know that. That's yeah. super interesting. And that movie was about uh, two crazy 
sisters, I think. No, it was about a relationship, a husband and a wife. And the, the husband keeps telling the wife she's crazy. And she's yeah. ga- gaslights her. It was done. They lived in. And that's where that term came from. And that's where that term oh, came shit. from. shit. And that's what fucking all these right wing motherfucking cocksuckers try to do is gaslight everybody. Yeah. You look at Donald Trump, he turns it all around. Oh no, I, I, you're the pedophile. I'm not the pedophile. <laughs> oh, Hillary Clinton is taking money from the Russians or whatever. Fuck off, dude. <laughs> Oh my God! So all you fucking right wing Joe Rogan supporting motherfuckers, come talk to me, Kelly Slater. <laughs> oh yeah, you watch the Kelly Slater well, podcast. Kelly, well, Kelly, you listen I, to the Kelly, Kelly Slater Kelly podcast. I, Kelly and I have an ongoing. No, I know Kelly. Yeah. Right? So we have an ongoing debate because you know I told him Joe Rogan was a fucking dick and he loves Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. Then he called me a liberal, a virtue signaler. And I said, dude, don't gaslight me, because you don't even know where the word gaslight comes from, motherfucker. No, I but do. But you're still the greatest surfer, and you're an incredible athlete, and I admire you because you're 52, but I'm 70. Fuck face. You don't look fucking 70 at all. Yeah, but by well, the Kelly way. said it doesn't look 52. You know, there's always things you have in common with, with these people, even if they support QAnon. You're, you guys, he, he's got such an interesting take on everything. Yeah, I just, I've I love been, listening to you. I yeah, really do. I, I, you must remember the difference between me and Kelly Slater is I went to Columbia University, an Ivy League school, and studied philosophy and got a master's on top of my class. And he's a surfer. So I want to listen to him about surfing and staying fit. He should listen to me about philosophy. But you're, that's what I'm saying. But he loves my movies. He thinks Sea of Darkness is one of the best movies of all time, best surf movie ever. So, you know, there's a lot in common. You can't just vilify people because of what they believe in. Right. Unless they're called Marjorie Taylor Greene or Donald Trump, in which case you just put them against the wall and shoot them. (coughs) That is, so. I mean, it really, I'm not just saying that either, dude. They have I, no value. A, yeah, no, I agree. What is what is Donald Trump's value on this planet besides being a fat fuck and consuming all these McDonald's? I just think it's so fucking interesting. He does. He buys How everybody else, How come he hasn't had a heart attack, dude? Well, you know, it's what's weird about him, though, and that, like what always frustrated me with him is like, how he just like double downs on double downs on things that are just very obviously lies. Double downs on French fries. Yeah, dude. Oh, like everything. Dollar. Yeah, dude. Yeah, but how come? Listen, I want to ask you. How come Jeff Beck is dead and Donald Trump is alive? What kind of? Can you honestly say there's a god? I mean, there's no fucking there's god. No, not not there's if, no not if you're gonna god. not if you're gonna say that. That's if for sure. I mean, if there's any god of fairness or mercy, why on earth would you? kill the guy who plays the most beautiful lyrical guitar and keep a fat fucking hamburger gouging pussy grabbing lying piece of sack of inherited money filth alive i don't know i'm just asking the question well, it's up to you guys to answer. You see why I want the transcript? Because I'm gonna give you the whole book. Oh, but book. I love it. I love it I though because it's so like fucking thing. I love it though because it's so it's it's fucking true. Okay, you know? Oh, you're you're cutting. You're cutting. She's like, I'm cutting this. We're cutting. You're the man. I've just. We're getting too political. Why? Well, oh, what? Because you're fucking uh, North Shore fucking QAnon bullshit, <laughs> dude. You think I'd get into a fist fight this time around with these fucking dumbasses? 